I think the most brilliant marketers would say, who are you? Whatever it is, bring it to the table, show it to the world, speak your, your truth. The way you build a brand is by finding a core audience that's going to embrace your message. And that core audience becomes your biggest influencers and they tell everybody else. And then it's just these concentric circles that just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Welcome to Brand Story, where we explore the heart and soul of brand building. Join us as we dive into the personal and professional journeys of brand leaders and storytellers and uncover the passion and authenticity it takes to craft positive brands. I'm your host, Steve Gilman, and my guest today is Miyoko Shinner. Miyoko is an American vegan activist, author, entrepreneur, chef, and the founder of the very successful CBG brand, Miyoko's Creamery. She's considered a pioneer in the production of vegan cheese and other products. In this episode, Miyoko and I discuss how personal authenticity drives brand success, why putting purpose before profit is so important, and how as leaders we should never compromise our core beliefs. Hi, Miyoko. Welcome to the program. Hi, Steve. I'm glad we finally caught up with each other. So thanks for being here today. And I'm going to jump in and ask you a few questions. You know, one of the things that I find fascinating about your story is that you really are one of the leading advocates uh, for the rights of vegan food products to use terms like cheese and milk and those kind of terms. You were on the forefront of this, and now it's like we're all used to it now. But can you tell me a little bit about that? Because you won some arguments against the state of California around that, didn't you? Yes, yeah. So that was actually specifically about the word butter. Um, when, yes, I, when I was at Miyoko's, we received uh, a letter from the state of California saying that we could not use the word butter on our uh, products uh, and that we had to remove all images of cows and other livestock from our website and marketing materials because such images belong to the uh, the dairy industry, which I thought was pretty <laughs> interesting. Um, and so, you know, I was already aware, having been part of the Plant-Based Foods Association, that we were not the first from to receive such a letter from the state of California. And also, we had received similar letters from other states as well. Uh, well, Wisconsin, uh, there was an issue uh, that we had in Wisconsin. Um, and then we had also received a sort of a, I don't know, a uh, class action lawsuit in the state of New York, um, all claiming that the use of the term butter was uh, confusing. Um, so what we did in the state of California, one thing that people do not realize is that California is the largest dairy state in the country. People think they associate Wisconsin with dairy, but the fact is California has more dairy cows, a bigger dairy industry um, per number of cows as well as actual dollar output than any other state in the country. Um, and so we felt like this was the battleground where if we were going to have this argument, it needed to be fought here. So uh, rather than just backing down and just saying, okay, California, we're going to do what you say and we're going to call it something else. Um, we sued the state of California. Now, I want to just backtrack a little bit and say, when I first started Miyoko's in, in 2014, California approached me and said, what are you going to call your product because you can't call it cheese? I didn't have butter at the time. I had only vegan cheese products. And so I was obviously, you know, wanting to comply with the state at the time. It was a tiny little entity. And so I came up with this creative solution and called it cultured nut product. And that was kind of a, from a marketing, I'm like from a marketer standpoint, I'm sorry, but what the heck is a cultured nut product? Yeah, nobody knows. How are you going to market your product? The greatest, the newest cultured nut product in the market. I mean, who the heck is going to understand what that means? How are you going to market or sell your product under something like that? 
And so, you know, the Plant-Based Foods Association was created uh, right around the same time as uh, Miyoko's was founded. And it felt to me absolutely essential that we argue that the need to be able to use terminology, which I will point out, has been used for thousands of years in other contexts. I mean, you know, we say cocoa butter or coconut butter. Um, and so these are, butter is not a term that is owned by the dairy industry. And so we felt that this was something that needed to be fought in the state of California. And um, well, we won that lawsuit. Um, Miyoko's won that lawsuit. And the term butter can be used to describe plant-based products now. Yeah, that's such an important milestone. And, you know, I, we'll get into a little bit more of this, but I think you're one of the people that combines brand and activism better than anyone that, that I've studied or researched. Well, thank you. Yeah, and, you thank know, you. we'll talk about that a little bit. I want to make sure our audience understands you founded Miyoko's Creamery. You were the entrepreneur with the idea, you were president of Miyoko's Creamery, and then parted ways in 2022, and then it kind of got worked out in 2023. Um, so there was some drama. I don't know what you can say or not say about it. That's not really why we're here today. But I want everyone to understand that, that you know, you've invented that company, built it from the ground up, and then parted ways. Is there anything you can kind of sum up about that experience? Uh, well, first of all, I appreciate uh, you acknowledging that. Um, I did start the company, and uh, um, it was an exciting period of my life, uh, being able to play, be a major player in, in the space and helping to pave the way for other products, other companies, uh, as we reinvent the future of food. Um, I think, you know, there, I can't say a whole lot about it. Um, I am moving on. Uh, I feel that there is even a bigger stage to play on, um, over, I've been a vegan for many years, for decades, and um, I've had other uh, plant-based companies as well. I had another uh, CPG company back in the 1990s making alternative meats at a time before, you know, we had words like alt-protein or alt-meat. Um, and I think my approach over the years, my thinking has evolved. Um, and I'm just not entirely sure that what we call market-based solutions. In other words, trying to solve the bigger problem just by changing out what is sold on the shelf is, is the end all or the answer for everything. And so I believe that, you know, perhaps this, this parting of ways was uh, essential for even my own thinking to evolve to a different place where I see a bigger picture. Because when you're in the midst of selling something, that's your biggest, focus. You're thinking about how do I sell this better? How do I grow this opportunity? And that can actually limit your perception of the picture of a bigger picture. Um, and so I feel like now I have a bigger vantage point to really examine, okay, how do we, if my, if my intention is to actually change how we eat on this planet in order to save the planet and to save animals, and that's the biggest goal and not just how do I sell this product, then, then really what's, what's required to do that? And so I feel like in some ways, you know, the parting of ways was maybe meant to be because it's put me in a different position where I can see the world differently again. So it's been a continued evolution of thinking for me. I bet, you know, it's a lot to go through when you come up with an idea, build a company and then eventually exit. And that's one of the reasons I was so uh, looking forward to talking to you. You know, we talk a lot about brand on this show. And you have a very unique vantage point as an entrepreneur. 
you you know you invented a brand you worked tirelessly to build it it was very very successful but i think you know one of the cool things about the brand and your journey is that you know it wasn't just selling products for you even from the beginning was it this is about much more than that I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make. And I think, you know, a lot of the Me Too brands, the people that, that see a movement, that see uh, uh, potential upside in, in, uh, in a business opportunity often jump in uh, just for that reason. And they don't have anything other than that. They learn the language. They, they learn to say the right things. You know, it's like, oh, I care about the environment, so I started this company or, or whatever. Um, but the, the real conviction, the real belief, the real mission isn't there. Um, everyone today knows that you have to have a mission behind a brand. And so everyone says, yeah, we're a mission-based company. Um, what we used to say is that we weren't a company with a mission. We were a mission with a company, um, it was, it's just, which is very, very different because I started out with a mission and then the company came out of it. It wasn't, okay, I invented this company and now I need to find a mission for it. I did have... Uh, another brand reached out to me one time and said, um, how do we become an authentic brand? And I thought, okay, that's a really strange question. It's a question that get asked, gets asked more than it should. It, it's definitely a question because it, people realize that authenticity sells. You can't become authentic. You can't manufacture it. You can't manufacture it. Yeah. You either are or you aren't. Um, and so, you know, I think in some ways, a lot of the Me Too brands, the, pe the companies, the people that just see the opportunity and jump in, have cr helped um, fuel the oversupply while not augmenting the demand. Yeah, and I think that that's across the board for food brands and other kinds of brands. Uh, for other kinds of brands. And so we're kind of stuck, you know, like whether it's online mattresses or whatever it is. But we're, we're kind of at a point, I think, a tr in, in our trajectory where there's more supply than there's demand. We haven't built that demand. And that conversation is now being had by people saying, wait a minute, we need to get back to creating awareness because you know, product, uh, product sales are declining and they are declining. Um, and we're now seeing a lot of uh, alt meat companies begin to fold or close down uh, uh, or being acquired for pennies. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more of that because, you know, I hate to say it, but that authenticity wasn't there. The, the, the real reason for creating something wasn't there. I love hearing that. I mean, I think I think that's what resonates with me about your story and about the brand you built and how successful it was is that, you know, you were on a mission with a company. And I think consumers sniff that out pretty quickly. People sense it. And if you're trying to manufacture your your why or you're trying to paste on a purpose onto your brand where you're really just trying to sell stuff, it's it, I don't think it's sustainable. No, and not only that, but I will add that what happens is you start out with a mission and you sell that mission as well as you sell the product. And people get excited by it because people want to find inspiration. People want a reason to believe in something. And then what happens is you get bigger and then people come in from traditional CPG, from bigger brands, and they say, well, wait a minute, we need to back off on this mission thing. You know, we need to tone it down a little bit, stop using words like vegan. Um, just be, we're going to scare people with all this activism. And the fact is, they're wrong. And a lot of brands do this. They're wrong because people actually are looking for leadership. People actually are looking for inspiration. And if you're just like every other brand, then there's nothing that distinguishes you. And it's just going to be a matter of, of fighting for price point. 
uh, you know, based on that. I've followed your story and your company and found your journey fascinating. And I can't imagine how many times you were told, don't talk about that so much or don't be such a vegan or try to appeal to more people. And the, my reaction too is be who you are. Be, be passionate. Exactly. Be, be real. Because I think that's what is attractive about your brand. I think that is, uh, I think the most brilliant marketers uh, and, and uh, branders would say that. Say, you know, who are you? Uh, whatever it is, bring it to the table, show it to the world, uh, speak your, your truth. And uh, unfortunately, you know, we're trained in uh, people that come out of, I don't know, whatever, CPG, traditional CPG, don't understand that. And they try to tone it down. And that's when you start to lose your audience. Because I think the way you build a brand is by finding a core audience that's going to embrace your message. And that core audience becomes your biggest influencers and they tell everybody else. And then it's just these concentric circles that just get bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and when you lose that and all of a sudden you try to speak to everybody, you start to speak to the TAM, you know, the, your total addressable market, the biggest market you possibly can. That's when you lose your voice and you lose everybody. To some people, it might just be aspirational. They might not be your core tribe. But they're on the sidelines and they want to they wanna be like your core tribe. They want to care more. They, they want to try it out. But when you, like, when you talk to everyone, you're saying nothing. You're saying absolutely nothing. Yeah, and you mean nothing to anyone. You mean nothing. And then it's just price point, which is on, what's on sale this week. Um, and I think there's also, you know, there's also this belief that, oh, you just have to communicate by taste. And once again, taste is also subjective. So it has to be good, but beyond good, you know, taste is very, very subjective. And what tastes good to one person isn't necessarily good to somebody else. Yeah. And you know what? I think those people miss, and I think you always got right in everything you do, because I follow you online and every message you do, everything you talk about, is that people buy everything emotionally. Yes. They don't buy yes. it. Intellectually. It, it's a hundred percent. Yeah. They don't go, oh, well, this product has this and it's, no. you know, tastes good. They're not making logical decisions. It's about passion and attraction. Exactly. And all these things. And I, it's amazing how many people lose that. And I think if you go to certain business schools, you come out and you think that human beings are logical. I've never met no. a logical human being. Exactly. And I think, you know, really good marketers understand that. Uh, you, speak to the, you speak to the spirit, the soul, the heart. Right. Uh, not the mind, not the intellect of the person. Um, because... You know, I mean, yeah, we don't make food decisions based on logic. I mean, yeah, we, we can all understand that plant-based foods are better for the environment, but that's not going to stop you from eating a, a, a juicy rib at a barbecue if, if that's what speaks to you, you know, because of the, the cultural heritage and the fact that, you know, you're in a community. We've also forgotten that food is consumed. It, it, food is always part of a cultural or communal setting. And even if we're eating in isolation today in front of our computers, the fact is whatever feelings that we developed about food came from some sort of communal setting. And so in marketing food, we have to create a sense of community. And if we fail to do that, if we fail to communicate to consumers that by consuming this food, you're a part of this greater community that is taking on whatever, you know, that is, that makes you, that gives you a certain feeling or that is... Uh, making you whatever, part of a movement or whatever, if it doesn't give you a sense of belonging, you're not going to be able to win conversion. Yeah, you're just a commodity. You're just a commodity. And, and so you come out of business school and you think, you know, you, you have all the, uh, the answers. And uh, unfortunately, 
you know, it just, it's not a rinse and repeat thing, especially when you're trying to reinvent a category, when you're trying to actually repave the future, the, the, the way humans eat, it's more than just, you know, switching out from one brand of potato chips to another. Everyone is on the path. I like to joke around and say, everyone is a pre-vegan. Uh, and so, you know, you're on a path, everyone's on a path somewhere. Um, and there's no judgment about it, but I think that the most important thing is that you create community. Um, and, and we've, we've forgotten that. That's really inspiring. I mean, uh, everything you've said about brand is so exciting to me because it's so on point of what I believe and what I've seen that actually works. You can never fake it. It's always has to be genuine. And another place that I think your story is really inspirational. We've met men, you know, there may be people listening that don't know, um, Miyoko's creamery, but you know, they may because the products are everywhere now. But you started that business at age fifty-seven. Yes, I did. I'm, I'm now. I'm going to be sixty-six in a couple, uh, in a couple of months. Actually, I know, but so. like, good for you. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, you know, I'd been through the rodeo, let's say, before with other brands. You know, I started other companies, and and uh, I've written books, uh, six cookbooks. I just got a, a contract for my, my seventh book. Uh, which will be about uh, vegan uh, creamery products. That's great. And I will get it because I have a couple of your cookbooks and they're great. I think that's another exciting thing that I have discovered at you know the age of 65 is that I think when I started this company and it was just growing, 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 I really felt, okay, this is my retirement. This is, you know, there's going to be a healthy exit at some point And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, this is, I got it up. The, the road is paid for me. Um, and then I can give to other function, uh, other causes, et cetera. And then, you know, the, the rug kind of gets pulled out from under you and your life doesn't go the way you planned. Um, but you continue to age. And so here I am in my mid sixties, um, and I'm having to reinvent myself yet again. It's not, it's not easy to go through a major change. Um, and you, you, there are definitely lows that you, you know, I had to, I've had to go through. We're all getting younger as we age these days. And if you maintain your health, um, you can have abundant energy to start a new venture at any age. Um, and so, yes, um, you know, I, I hope I can come up with something new that will be equally, if not more successful. Um, no guarantee, of course, but I am I am embarking yet again at the age of 65. Good for you. I think that's a wonderful message for anyone that has the seed of an idea or anyone that's passionate that it doesn't matter your age if you really really believe in it and it brings value to other people. Then, you know, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 14 years old. So, you know, I you sort of, you have a heart of an entrepreneur too. You're always inventing and coming up with new things. And so as an entrepreneur, I'm sure you've faced like so many moments of doubt and had to struggle through adversity. Is there any like challenges that come to mind that you think other people that might be considering an entrepreneurial journey would learn from? Well, I think <laughs> like many people, I definitely have struggled with imposter syndrome um, pretty much the entire journey. Uh, constantly second guessing myself, partly because, you know, I didn't come out of business school. I have a degree in philosophy, I, um, which I think actually helped me because it has helped me question everything and think about things rather than just accepting that whatever I learned in, 
you know, I don't know, in a, in a book that I read was the truth. Um, I think when you come out of business school or something, you're, you're often kind of set in your ideas because you think, well, this is what I learned in school and this is how it's done. Um, and I think there's a lot of valuable lessons to be learned from that. But I think there's also valuable lessons in questioning everything and saying, well, wait a minute, is that the only way? Uh, have we really examined every side of that rock? Have we turned it over? Um, and I think that's what I have always done. Um, and so, you know, in the very beginning of even my journey in the plant-based food space, you know, as one of the earlier um, innovators in it, um, as, as new innovation came along, I immediately thought, oh, well, that's really exciting. Um, but I think in my trajectory, I, I'm continuing to, to analyze everything, to look at uh, even, you know, the company that I started, um, the products that I created, um, as well as others in the marketplace. I'm always questioning, okay, what is it we have to do? How do we create a food system that is not just sustainable, uh, but equitable for all people? Um, and, and, you know, and saves animals. Like there, there's, there's every, there's so much to be analyzed. I think being curious and looking at problems from all sides is probably one of the best qualities of an entrepreneur. I think it's easy for entrepreneurs that aren't coming out of business school that are, that are bringing their passion to the table to question themselves and think, okay, um, I just don't know as much as everybody else. And, and yes, and that's true. There's a lot about whatever industry you're getting into that you have to learn. There are certain rules, but then there are rules that you can actually break. And so, you know, learn all the rules and then figure out which rules aren't working that you need to break and set a new paradigm for. That's really great advice. And I think, you know, you've had a lot of success and not just monetarily. I mean, you've had success changing how people think. You've had success changing what can be said about products. So how do you even, you know, after going through all this and starting another venture now in your, in your 60s and starting that incredibly uh, successful one in your mid-50s, how do you define success for yourself? Well, that's a really great question. Um, so I think we live in a country where we define happiness according to financial success. So we wake up every single morning not thinking, how am I going to be happy today or how am I going to help the world today? We wake up thinking, okay, how do I earn another dollar? How do I get ahead? How do I beat the competition? And we live in a world where we are all chasing what we call success. I think perhaps the question needs to be, how do I become happy? And how do I help others become happy? How do I create a world that is, that is better and, and happy? And that may not be in, that may be in conflict with what we define as personal success. So um, I think we need to to reassess that. We, we also know that a lot of so-called successful people aren't necessarily happy. The Forbes 50 over 50 list that I'm on, for example, the whole Forbes concept of what's, you know, we're always celebrating billionaires. Why are we doing that? Why is what a billionaire says more important than, let's say, a popper with a really deep thought? Why do we value, we basically value the lives of people with money more than we value the lives of those without. And that's just wrong. And we need to really redefine the value of a human being in a different way. I think, at least I hope, there are other people that agree, a lot of other people that agree with that and people that might be starting companies, that it's more about adding value and helping others. And it's not just about how much money you can make. I, I agree with you 100%. It's never for me been about how much money I could make. 
and how much status I could get to adding value and then having a nice life to go with it. You know, because when those two go together, you function better and you add more value. We all need to make a living, but we don't need to make a killing. That's a great way to put it. Uh, this is what I get for talking to a philosopher. This is awesome. I'm enjoying this. But, you know, the uh, uh, why we worship billionaires is something I think about, like with Elon, Elon Musk and what's going on with the train wreck that is Twitter and everything. And, you know, money doesn't, a ton of money does not make you even sometimes the smartest person in the room. Sometimes you're just the luckiest. Exactly. But we listen to those with money more than we do those without. Because we somehow equate success with, I don't know, the, the value of a human being, their intelligence or whatever. I'd, I'd much rather listen to Billy Collins and have him talk to me about meaning than listen to Elon Musk talk to me about what's important. That's for sure. Yes. I, you know, that makes me wonder about something because you've gone through, you've had such a journey in your life going from, you know, uh, getting into plant-based foods, becoming a vegan, really being passionate about it and teaching others. What's something that you've changed your mind about as you've kind of gone through all the things you've gone through? I think I was of the mindset that the way we had, the only way we could change the world um, and get people to change how they eat, um, how they ate was to change what was sold. So what's called market-based solutions. All we have to do is switch out uh, the burger, a hamburger for a vegan burger, and and then um, you know people are going are going to change how they eat, and it isn't true. It hasn't happened, and it isn't true. If people don't have a reason to buy the vegan burger, then why would they? Unless it you know maybe it's cheaper. I mean that would be a reason, but to make a long term uh, change, no, uh, we have to also provide the reason. Um, create the awareness or people aren't going to buy those products. And so once again, we go back to education, awareness, activism, advocacy, and maybe we need to reinvent how we do that. Yeah. I think it's, it's so emotional, Yes, you know, any of the things that you just named advocacy when done well is emotional, you know, education, when you teach someone something, if they can remember it emotionally and not just intellectually, it works better. And, you know, one of the reasons that I find the vegan movement and vegan food so fascinating is I see, I've worked with hospitals for, geez, 25 years of my career. And so over and over again, I've seen people who have had really difficult health problems, change their diet and get a better quality of life. So for them, yeah, it's a market-based solution. They need to do it, but then it becomes an emotional payoff. All of a sudden, they feel better. Their life is better. So I think that well, that's what I'm, one of the things I've seen where people adopt healthier diets. They get this reward that's highly emotional. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I know so many people that have changed their diet for health reasons that all of a sudden go, oh, my God. And then there's this other benefit yeah. uh, of you know, saving the environment. Right. And that makes me feel good, too. Yeah, exactly. Because not only do I feel better health-wise, but I also know that my choices are saving the planet or saving animals or so. And then they get excited about that. And it's just this emotional, yeah, this uh, trajectory of just feeling good about yourself. Uh, and you feel good about yourself um, health-wise, emotionally, intellectually, and it gets you even more excited and you become more passionate about it. I mean, I've seen this time and time again with people. Yeah, I think it's a really, it's an amazing thing. And I think, you know, uh, 
any company, any person trying to do good in the world and, you know, be part of the solution, whatever the solution is of just adding value to other people's lives and not taking advantage of people, but actually helping them. Certainly that's what you've done through your entire career. You're helping people eat healthy. You're helping people see an alternative way to eat things that don't make them sick. And I think that's so meaningful. For where you are right now, and you know, you're looking at this whole new thing, what would you call this chapter of your life right now? <laughs> not the end. <laughs> not, not the great wind down. Maybe I was getting a little too comfortable thinking, okay, I'm going to be sitting, uh, sitting nicely at some point in the near future, and uh, you know, I won't have to report to work every single day, and I'll be able to to do other things, uh, throw myself more into nonprofit work or whatever. And and now I'm realizing, okay, um, what's the next chapter? I've got to fight not only for animals, which was really my uh, objective before, um, and obviously the planet, but I also feel that I need to fight for women and people of color. Um, because I, I've, since everything happened, you know, I've talked to so many women entrepreneurs and also some um, male entrepreneurs who are either black or um, or uh, brown and have discovered that they have struggled quite a bit, not only in fundraising, but just in, in how they've been treated in their companies by their board, et cetera, um, and have lost their companies or there's some pretty hard luck stories that I've heard. Uh, and many of them cannot come forward. Most of them can't come forward. And, and so, you know, this story needs to be told. Um, uh, I uh, want to create some sort of platform where um, women and uh, people of color entrepreneurs can come together to talk about best practices. How do they protect themselves in the future? Um, because they are the ones that are coming up with the great ideas. Um, and we don't value ideas. Well, we ultimately, we're going back to the topic before we value the money. And so at the end of the day, it's always those with the money that hold all the cards. Yeah, they're almost the ru ruling class in a way. Yeah, no, they are the ruling class. I mean, throughout history, it, it, you know, there were benefactors of great artists, for example. But art, the arts, uh, the idea people, um, often struggle because they're dependent on the money people. I think private equity, you know, it's such a bizarre system we have among many bizarre systems we have, uh, you know, globally and in America. You know, you have a very unique seat at this, so I'm glad that you're going to be talking to women leaders. I had seen that you had started to do that after your Miyoko, Miyoko Creamery experience as that wound down. But, you know, private equity, I've seen it ruin so many companies because it's about extraction. You have to, if they put money in, they're going to extract value out. I mean, that is a really good way to... <laughs> <laughs> to put it, there's got to be some sort of mathematical equation that represents that. But but it really, really is true. I mean, there there are companies that just completely fold that you never hear about again um, after private equity gets involved, um, or they just get completely watered down and and they lose that the essence that made the brand what it was initially. You know, it it'll be interesting to see what happens to this entire plant-based sector um, in the future. Um, there's been a lot of really great ideas, a lot of copycats, but of the original idea makers, let's see, you know, what happens. I hope it continues and grows and there, there becomes better equity, not in the way of like, you know, dollar equity, but better equity. Yeah. Better equity between the leaders and the inventors and the people with money. Um, so I hope that you can encourage other leaders and, 
you know, other women leaders to get a little bit better of a fair shake as they, you know, put their lives on the line to create companies and create things for others, people that, you know, it's, it's one of those things about capitalism where you have to have the money to, to scale anything. But, you know, I've always been of the mind too, that you don't actually have to scale everything as fast as you can. Well, thank you. And and that's the way the world evolved um, for, for most of human history, you know, and today, if you don't scale and scale rapidly, you're, there's no chance of, of getting, you know, a foothold in a marketplace, in a, in a, in a retailer or anything. And, and that's really, really sad because as I said before, you don't, we just have to all make a living. You don't have to make a killing. We can, why don't we spread the equity uh, or spread the wealth so that there, we can have more producers uh, and support local economies. And, you know, so instead of having just, you know, a handful of vegan cheese companies, why don't we have a vegan cheese company, a small vegan cheese shop in every single municipality? Like, why not allow opportunity for more people uh, and, and, and give the equity back to them rather than, you know, just having a handful of stakeholders who make a, a, a killing while others all fold. And, and that's the direction we're going. We're ha- we have more billionaires than we've ever had in the history of, of the United States. And the way we consolidate power and money in a handful um, of corporations is going to just continue that trajectory. And we're going to have uh, more and more losers and fewer and fewer winners. But the winners will be, they'll hit the jackpot. It's a big issue and it's a very, it can be very difficult to solve. But, you know, the the people who own businesses that that are, you know, the the industry equivalent of successful series of food trucks, tend to be happier and tend to feel better because they're adding value to their community. They're successful. They can pay their bills. They may even own a few. I'm just using this as an analogy, but a few restaurants in a in a small area. For a lot of people, that's good enough. It doesn't have to then become this big thing that's about as much money as possible and being famous and the accolades. So I think there's like a cultural part of this that's just really odd that we do. Exactly, Steve. I mean, you you absolutely nailed it. We're all sort of caught up in this race to the top. And we're, we can't just be happy. I mean, when I first started Miyoko's, uh, my idea was actually to have a little vegan cheese shop in Fairfax, California, and then have the, the mountain bikers stop by and grab some cheese and a baguette before they went off on their ride. I mean, it was just a very simple, I live here and it was like, okay, this I want to do this and, and I'll sell some products online and it'll be a nice little business. Um, and I raised an initial seed round, which I thought was was going to be it. And then we got into Whole Foods and it was like, all of a sudden the race was on. And it was like, how do we get bigger, 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 bigger all the time and become, you know, the the one of the top known brands in the country. Um, and I, that's one area where my that evolution of my my thinking has changed. You know, where I feel like, okay, um, we can't just continue to see ourselves as competitors trying to, uh, you know win over all of the others like why don't we i've always said we should be collaborators but why don't we try to create a system where we can all win together um and why do we all have to become you know multi-millionaires why can't we just make a living like what is wrong with that but we've forgotten you know that doesn't get the accolades people don't say oh you're so successful if all you have 
is a restaurant or a little cheap vegan cheese shop. Well, they should because there's a lot of people. Yeah, you know, like our business is is very successful. We've been around this is our 29th year in business. But I've had congratulations. Thank you, and I've had several opportunities to scale it or, you know, be purchased or make it bigger and bigger, and. For whatever reason, my instincts have always been to have it big enough to be sustainable, but not so big that it spirals into something that loses its heart, you know? So, yeah, we're not like in New York City in a giant skyscraper, but we're plenty successful and everyone here is happy and that's all I care about, you know? And when we help, when we get to help our clients, we help them. Yeah. So I think more of that would be great, wouldn't it? I, I completely concur. Um, and I don't, I, you know, I don't know how to get off of this because the system in CPG is all about growth. It's very, very hard. I don't know how we get out of this this private equity system. Um, I think crowdfunding is a great opportunity. I mean, there's a lot of that now, and you know, I'm actually, I think we need to embrace that more uh, because it's now legal to raise equity. Uh, there are, you know, pr- crowdfunding equity platforms that didn't exist before. You know, the SEC has uh, has created rules around that, which is one it was Ill, not possible ten years ago, but it is today. Um, and so, you know, maybe that's a, a, a new trajectory that will cr- help create more equity for more companies. I really hope so. You know, because I think I think it would be good in so on so many levels, and I think it is much more difficult in CBG than some other industries, like service industries, are are e- usually the easy easiest to scale to a reasonable level, and not just have it spiral out of control. Uh, so, but yeah, it's like when CBG, it's an unimaginable pressure for growth at all costs. So I can't keep you all afternoon, even though I would like to, because I'm so enjoying this conversation. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much for your time. But I have one last question for you. Um, if you could give your younger self any advice at this point, what would it be? Oh, gosh. Um, I would say to my younger self, uh, who is full of self-doubt, I believe, don't lose your authenticity. Don't give it away uh, to the so-called experts. Um, I think early from early on, I held back. Um, in previous businesses. Um, and I think in my last business is when I began to finally have the courage to really be my authentic self. And I think that is one reason it was so successful initially. Well, thank you so much for being here today. I can't wait to see what you do next. And, you know, thank you so much for bringing so much value to the world and the people around you. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciate enjoying the talk. Want to hear more inspiring stories? Subscribe on your preferred podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what we're doing, please rate, review, and share. It's the best way to support us. Thank you for listening to Brand Story.